Well, brothers and sisters, good evening. Do have your journals out or your Bibles handy as we make our way through what we can probably all assume is a, a bit of a tricky part of Romans. I have to say, though, I've, I've loved personally for me taking the time to go slowly through Romans like this and, and just see the contours of, of Paul's thought. But I also think it's been incredibly timely for us to be thinking of this divided church in Rome and how they are united under the gospel. So, so think about it for a second. We as a, as a church family here have had lots of change and, and lots of people come in recently. So for us, it's helpful to think about how God has made us one people. But also in the, in the wider church, there's so much division with people seeming to throw off these historical and biblical doctrines and, and ways of relating to the Bible, left, right, and center. There's sort of a, a constant stream of, of rubbish from celebrity pastors across one sea, and then the schismatic pandering coming from across the other. But even here on our own island as well, within our own denominations, there are rumblings and, and fractures and disunity. God has said that he will build his church, that, that, that we are a holy nation. And yet sometimes we can look about and, and wonder if those promises still hold. This section of Romans from chapters 9 to 11 sort of, sort of touches on similar themes. If you remember back to when we started this series, we said that, that Paul is showing God's righteousness is being revealed. And how this gospel shows, this, this gospel shows how God is, is just and righteous. And so on one hand, we have this idea that, that God will keep his promises and that, that he has planned all this in the beginning. But on the other hand, we have these Jewish Christians hearing this message and, and thinking back to their people, ethnic Israel, and all the promises that God has made about them. And so Paul raises this problem in chapter 9. You say that God is sovereign and faithful and keeps his promises. Well, what about Israel? Did God's plan for them fail? We're going to walk through chapter 10 um, to see how God shows us that he is faithful to his promises and, that, and what that can mean for us as a church today. As I've set that up, though, I, 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 can kind of, I can kind of tell that's going to come across maybe a little bit heavy for some of us, and that's not what I'm trying to go for here. Um, so let's just take a second. Let's, let's pray for a bit of guidance for us all as we walk through it. Lord God, we ask that you would open our eyes to your truth, that we would rejoice and be glad in it. Guide us through your Spirit to understand more of who you are. Let us rest in your faithfulness. Amen. Okay, let's, let's dive into the text. If you've got your journals there, I, I want you to draw a few lines for me because we're going to divide up the text into sections so that we can trace what Paul is saying here. Okay, so firstly, I want you to mark off or box off or divide up, however, you, however way you want to do it, chapter 9, verse 30, until chapter 10, verse 4. So chapter 9, 30 to 10, 4. That's, that's our first box of thought. And if it's going to help you, you can, you can give that box the heading, something along the lines of, of Paul's statement or, or the Gentiles receive righteousness. 
The, the next section we're going to write, draw a line from is verses 5 until verse 13. So from 5 until 13, you can, you can draw a box around that text and, uh, and give it the heading, Paul's reason, or scriptural justification, or, or something that shows you that he's giving evidence for what he's just said. Then if you can box off verses 14 to 17, and you can give that one the title, Paul's problem or, or the objection. And then finally, from 18 to the end, that's our final box, and, and, and that's going to be Paul's response to those objections. So hopefully these sections will, will help us see what is, what is being said and make it a little bit clearer for how we apply it to ourselves. So that's Paul's statement, <clears throat> Paul's reason, Paul's problem, and Paul's objection. Look with me to the, the first box, Paul's statement. Paul's thought starts here, and he lays out this big statement. The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith. But the people of Israel, so note the, the immediate contrast of these two groups, have not attained their goal. So one group have received righteousness, have gained a status with God, but the group that, is, that assumed that they had it already don't. And why not? Well, verse 32, because they pursued righteousness by works rather than by faith. So they tried to earn their way into the family and failed. Now, last week, Christoph asked us to consider how the Jewish Christians would have, have felt about hearing some of these things. All their cultural assumptions are being challenged here. And it must have been for them really easy to consider the, the people that they knew and, and think, but they're such good people. They do, they do everything right. How can they not have earned their place? And we can have that same thought, can't we? Those friends and family who, who we have who, who don't know Christ but are just such nice people. It's hard for us to, to put them in the categories that God gives us. And Paul shows us he's not blind to that feeling. Chapter 10, verse 1, his heart's desire is that they might be saved. Paul loves his people. He knows how much effort they put in into following the law, how much good they do. But he also isn't blinded by their good deeds or their zeal in following the law because he can see that their zeal is not based upon an experiential knowledge of God's goodness, but upon a, a faulty assumption of self-righteousness. They do good so that they are good. They, they, they don't know the righteousness of God, as, as in they don't have an experience of it or, or a sense of just how holy God is and, and how far they fall short. And so their zeal in trying to hold themselves up as being able to complete the law as deserving of a place at God's table. They didn't humble themselves and submit to God's righteousness. What they were aiming at, the goal of their efforts, was their own righteousness. But as verse 4 tells us, the culmination of the law, and, and, and just in terms of that, the in culmination, the translators are, are trying to get the sense that the Christ is the goal of the law, that, that the purpose of the law is, is in pointing to Christ. 
So whilst they had been aiming at, at their own righteousness, the goal of the law is Christ and his righteousness. Paul gives us here two roots, but only one that ultimately leads to a right standing with God. So in answer to, to the question, why are so many of ethnic Israel not saved? Paul states that they were pursuing righteousness in the wrong place. So note that down if you, you can. They were pursuing righteousness in the wrong place. That's, that's Paul's statement. But we should think as well about why he can say this. What's, what's Paul's reason? Look with me to our, our second box, verse 5. Now, you might recognize some of this from our series in Deuteronomy. Paul is trying to show that the law has always worked, as he's just described. So we have these two roads again. The first in verse 5, seeking our own righteousness, righteousness, where you have to live perfectly by the law. And only by following the letter of the law will you be righteous. And another path where, if you believe in Christ, righteousness is credited to your account. So the first, first path sets righteousness as, as something to be reached in the distance. Doing all these things is going to get you there. But the second path emphasizes the nearness of righteousness through Christ and the Word. So in verse 6, the way of faith, first he says that it's not that the way is so high above you that you can't understand it, or so far away from you that there's this impossible divide between you. But instead, verse 8, the Word is near you. God has done what you are incapable of. He has come close. The word is in your mouth and in your heart. And what is that word? Verse 9, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So Paul sets this out in a simple way. For ethnic Israel, there is a path to salvation, to righteousness, and it is through recognizing that Jesus is the path to life, that he is the fulfillment of the law, and it is through calling upon his name that we are saved. So we've seen Paul say that, that, that Israel was pursuing righteousness in the wrong way. And now we see that, that Paul is saying that, that, that they are the ones that have left the path, that the gospel that he is explaining is the way that God has always acted, but also the Jews should have known this. God's covenant promise and purpose have not changed. This is the way it always was. Rather than trusting in their self-righteousness, they should have been calling on the name of the Lord and trusting in him. That's our, our second box. In our third section, Paul moves on to raise a few objections. And here you can see we get a logical chain, okay? Remember, at the top of the chain is, is being saved. That's the goal. And the chain to get there is calling on the Lord. And for that to happen, they need to believe in him, to believe they need to hear, to hear they need someone to preach. And for someone to preach, they need to be sent to them. And we've all probably heard this applied to, to missions, right? And, and maybe Paul has at the back of his mind a thought that, that he's wanting to use the Roman church to, to send him on to Spain. So maybe there's this, this dropping of the logical chain to, to get them to think about that. 
But although we, we can apply this to mission, that, that, that's valid, and, and the wider church really needs to apply this more than we are to our thinking on missions. But it, it's not actually Paul's main point. Remember, we are talking about ethnic Israel and the gospel. So what we have here are objections that people might raise to what Paul's saying. Well, well Paul, you are telling us this, but no one told my grandparents. How could they have chosen the, wrath, the right path if no one told them about it? My, my cousins live really far away, and no one is going out there to tell them about all this. How could they choose this path you're talking about? They're all objections that, that seem to suggest that this gospel makes it look like God has changed his plans regarding Israel, which would make God unfaithful and so invalidate all that Paul is saying. So where his opponents are thinking that the requirements for salvation were being part of ethnic Israel, and Paul is saying, no, no, that's not the case. It's faith in Christ. They come back to him here asking, but if God hasn't provided the, the prerequisites needed for faith in Christ to Israel, then how can he be faithful to the promises that he made to them? As to this that Paul turns in verse 18 with a question of his own, and circle this, it's important. Did they not hear? Of course they did. And to prove this, he quotes Psalm 19. Go and read Psalm 19. It's incredible. The heavens declare the glory of the Lord, and later his law is called perfect. What Paul's doing is, is, is saying, how can you claim to not have heard? It's been so obvious to you. They've had the law all these years. All their life has pointed to them, and cre even creation shows them that there is a God. So they can't claim to not have heard They've had both general and special revelation. But okay, maybe they, they have heard, but they didn't understand. Circle that question in verse 19. Did Israel not understand? And again, Paul answers this by, by drawing from Scripture. Deuteronomy 32 talks about a time when Israel trusted in idols. And what God said through Moses was that because of that, God was going to extend his covenant blessings to other nations and so make Israel jealous. And what's important about this is, is that they should know, because of this, they should know that salvation wasn't going to be limited just to ethnic Israel. If you're taking notes, you can note down that, that here is an appeal to the law that proves Paul's point. Salvation is not through ethnic lines, but through faith. Then in verse 20, Paul moves on to Isaiah, where God says, I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. So again, that's knowing that God wouldn't limit himself to ethnic Israel. And so here we have an appeal to the prophets that proves Paul's point. Both the law and the prophets, the two biggest witnesses that Jews could have, showing that this has been how God has worked from the beginning, that his covenant plan and purposes haven't changed with this gospel. God has sent them prophets and preachers. They have heard. They have understood. But they didn't believe. So they didn't call upon the name of the Lord, and instead they went their own way. And so they weren't saved. 
God has done all that is necessary for them to know him and receive his righteousness. And the chapter ends saying, with God saying, all day long I've held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. Even with all he's done, still some of ethnic Israel saw that and rejected the offer. Chapter 10 is, is part of an answer to the question as to whether God is faithful and whether he keeps his promises if not all of ethnic Israel will be saved. And Paul says that, that God is faithful and he does keep his promises. Now, what that looks like for ethnic Israel, well, you'll, you'll have to come back in a couple of weeks' time to find out. Now, I'm not just trying to build in cliffhangers into our, our, our sermons to keep you interested. I, I just think we should pause here and consider this. God has done all that is necessary for them to know him, for them to grow in him. And yet they reject his offer. Why would they do that? And to bring us home to us a little bit, why would we do that? Well, why they did that might be fairly obvious. They, they, they trusted in their own capacity to attain righteousness. They didn't feel the need for Christ because they were able to earn what was an offer. And if they're able to earn their salvation and, and were good at doing what was needed to be done, then, then why take the risk of this grace thing? A way to salvation that marked them out as, as being special and more honorable than others and was, it was, and was within their control was much more preferable to a way that dismissed their capacity and their talents. God held out his hands to a path that attributed his righteousness to them. And what that meant was it held him up as glorious. And they realized that accepting that would be to humble themselves. And so they turned away, trying to be glorious in their own right foolish people. Oh, it's such a good thing we'd never do that, right? Good thing that we'd never take the Bible and, and filter it through our own cultural values, judging whether the, pl the plain teaching of God was up to our standards or not. Good thing we would never go through linguistic gymnastics to try and explain away God, things that God has made clear. Good thing that we can say that we walk by faith and not by sight, eh? The modern church is either pandering to the world or bending to pragmatism. It's either saying that God's word is wrong and that we need to change it, adapt it, modernize it, or it's saying that it's just not sufficient for our context, that we need new and better ways of doing things. Either way, it's, it's the same thing as what Israel was doing. We have the plain teaching of God in the Bible on all sorts of things from sexual ethics to how, to how to run the church. And yet we still say, no thank you, Lord. We've had a thought there, and, and this might be a better way, Lord. We're still submitting to you, Lord. We're just doing things in a different way. As if calling him Lord and putting all the trappings of church were going to mask our rebellion. Have we not heard that, that sexual sin 
that pride, that greed are wrong? Of course we have. It's right here in black and white in front of us. Have we not understood what God is telling us? Of course we have. Scripture is clear and understandable to all, and God has given us churches and elders to explain it. Our issue is that we want to go our own way, to live in a way that appears to to submit ourselves to God, but yet we really get all the glory. Some have departed from God's way so that that they seem more compassionate or, or tolerant. They get the glory. Others bend and twist things so that they seem more creative or or they are the leaders of movements. And they get the glory. They turn away from God's path because there is something about us as humans that wants to gather and hoard glory to ourselves. Now, I've I've tried to be careful in how I've, I've said things, but we have to realize that This isn't limited to people we hear about overseas. We all do this in one area or another. We all got tempted to go our own way. That's why the devil tempted Jesus like he did. The human condition is is to raise ourselves up rather than submit to God. And so faced with God's word and, and the example of Israel in Romans 10, we need to think of ways that we can submit ourselves to God in our daily walk. Not not to be legalistic about it or to, to raise ourselves up in some kind of self-righteous way, but to think, how can we choose the path of life? How can we accept the blessing that God is holding out to us with open hands? And so I want you to note down three things at the, at the bottom of your page, three things that I'm going to ask you to, to go away and, and, and to think about. To submit to God, we need to know his word. We need to humble our hearts and we need to be accountable to his people. Know his word, humble our hearts and be accountable to his people. Which of those, I wonder, makes you the most nervous? To submit to God, we need to be serious about his word and that means increasing the volume of scripture that you read. It means consistent devotional times. But it might also mean thinking about about what you read and and getting into good books, what you listen to and getting into good podcasts or music. We even, look, we have a college down the road that offers amazing courses. Why not study and and, and really understand his word? What's the next step for you? And if something popped into your head just now, just, just write it in your journal. Secondly, to submit to God, we need to humble our hearts. Now, that's a little more complicated. It's not something that we can really do. It's something that we're going to receive. In the moments where we're confronted or guilty, when we mess up, are we willing to receive humility, accept fault, and ask for forgiveness? Or do we continue the worldly cycle of trying to justify our actions? So many of us, and I will hold my hand up and say I'm the chief among you, need to be aware that that I'm sorry, but that just isn't repentance. We need to receive humility through faith. And finally, to submit to God, we need to be accountable to his people. And that's the awful one, isn't it? I can read another chapter a day. I can try and accept responsibility, but being accountable to others, oh man, that that just hits 
my, my pride. It unsettles my sense of self. I don't want people to ask me the hard questions about my life and my faith, but wow, is it good for me? We need to know that God has given us his church as a way of, of living. He has required us to confess our sins to one another, to live with one another. So who do you have holding you accountable? Who do you have to ask you the hard questions? This isn't a, a mandatory command, but it's something that's going to help you immensely. Ask people to look at your life and tell you where it is out of step with Scripture. And please, brothers and sisters, do it soon because it's a lot easier to course correct at the start. If that's you, as it was me, write it in your journal. Don't let embarrassment stop you from growing in Christ. Israel saw God's will, understood God's will, and yet they went another way. God, God did everything that they needed, and yet they rejected it. Will you? Or will you submit to God in all that he says? Not, not out of guilt, but knowing that, that, family, this is a joyous invitation. This is to get the satisfaction of our souls. He has given us a, a path to life, to a fuller understanding of him. It, it's not too far away. It's not too hard to get. It, it is with us. It is in our hearts and in our mouths. All we have to do is trust in it, to proclaim that Jesus is Lord over all our lives. God has done all that is required for us to know him more. His arms are stretched out to us. Don't look at that with guilt. Look at that with joy. Wherever you are, what an opportunity that you have to know and love your Lord more. God's promises hold. No matter what is going on, he is faithful, and this life is here for us regardless of what things look like around us. So what might it look, look, what might it look like for you to dive further into that joy? Maybe you're here this evening and, and that is a, a challenge to you to, to wake up. To, or maybe it's a reminder to you that, that, that our God reigns and just makes you want to sing. The, the band, I'm going to invite the band to come back up now. And, and as they do, that, remember that wherever you are spiritually, whatever's happening in your life, when we join together in song, we are coming before God. We are seeing him in his glory and goodness so that we can submit in joyous love to his gospel in our lives. So if you know God as your king, stand with me now as we sing of his praise, as we point one another to the gospel again, as we sing, Awake, awake, O Zion. Awake, O Zion. Awake, 